If this is your first Sunday here, welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. My name is Dustin. I get to be the pastor here, and we're going through the Gospel of John. And John chapter 6 today, which we're going to start, is actually the longest chapter in the Gospel of John, and it's the longest chapter in the entire New Testament. Now, so with that, we're just going to take the first 15 verses together in this quite famous story. Uh, with that in mind, friend, would you hear the reading of God's Word from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread, 200 days work worth of bread, would not be enough for each one of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those they had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So keep John chapter 6 open in front of you as we pray. Uh, Father, as we open up your word, uh, Lord, we pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts to understand what you would have us to know and to believe. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are malleable in your hand. Uh, Father, we are like dry clay and you are a potter. Pour out the water of your Holy Spirit on us and form and fashion us into who you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, hey, as we dive into this uh, famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, I do have a question for you, if that's okay. Um, Are you one of those people who is really good at tests? Are you really, you know those annoying people, you know, who are just always really, oh, I love being tested. That's what I thrive at. Anyone here really feel like uh, you're great at taking tests? You know, I'm not just talking to the teenagers in the room, although I am sort of talking to you as well. But, you know, when we come to tests, we typically think tests are sort of designed to sort of make us fail, right? That's like the point of a test, right? If it was easy, it wouldn't be a test, right? Every teacher in the room is like, yes, exactly, yes. Are you all taking notes? Well, today's passage um, is all about tests. If you look at this passage in John, if you look down at John verse 6-6, that verse right there is the exact purpose of this story. 
And John tells us, it's almost like he puts it in parentheses. This is John telling us what's going on in this story. And whenever John does that, that's the purpose of the story, right? John is saying he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. That is, when Jesus is confronted with thousands and thousands of people who need a dinner, and he turns to Philip and he says, how are we supposed to feed them all? What are we going to do? That is the test. And what's fascinating about this story in particular is if you're a student of the Bible, if you like reading the Bible, you'll know that there are four stories that all depict Jesus's life. They're the four Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you're a further student of the Bible, you'll also remember that three of those Gospels are very similar. They're called the synoptic Gospels, meaning they see the same Sin optic. They see the same. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very, very, very similar. They often tell the same stories. And it's fascinating because John is sort of like the black sheep to the three white sheep. John has all this information uh, that comes because he's an eyewitness. For instance, John tells us the loaves are barley. Anyone care that they ate barley in this story? You will in a minute, but John wants you to know that when Jesus makes the bread, it's barley. It's not just regular bread. And John gives us tons and tons of stories that don't happen in any other gospel. So, for instance, when Jesus, you know, turns the water into wine, that's not in any other gospel account. Jesus at the wedding in Cana, John chapter 2, is not recorded in the other gospels. Now, if you look at Jesus' miracles, and the reason I bring that up is because if you look at the miracles of Jesus, you know, not the resurrection, that's obviously a miracle, but the actual like healing ministries, those miracles, when Jesus lets people see and he heals them and he causes miracles to happen, the only miracle that all four Gospels want you to know about is this miracle. So not only do Matthew, Mark, and Luke want you to know this story, John says, of all the different stories, this is the most important one I want you to see. And what's great when you study the Bible is all of the gospel accounts really contribute to this beautiful uh, complexity of the story of Jesus. Not that it's hard to understand, but it's complex like a supreme pizza is complex. All of the different toppings make it even better. So when you read the gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us this story that Jesus goes away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew tells us it's because Jesus is heartbroken because his friend had just died. You may know his friend. His name is John the Baptist. And so people come to Jesus and they say, John the Baptist has been beheaded. And Jesus says, that's it. I'm going away by myself to pray with my father. And of course, the disciples follow him, and so does this huge crowd, because Jesus can't get away from people. But Jesus is heartbroken in this story. That's why he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. But Mark adds more complexity to the story, because in Mark 6, Mark tells us that Jesus had just sent out his 12 disciples to heal people and spread the gospel, and now they've come back, and they're all exhausted. In fact, Mark says they haven't even had lunch in a long time. They've been working so hard that they haven't even stopped to eat. Anyone here worked recently so much that you forgot to eat lunch? Well, that's exactly what the disciples have done. They have worked themselves, and they're exhausted, and they come back to Jesus. And in Mark, Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, You're tired, and you're exhausted. You need to come away with me 
Philip, let's go to your hometown. Let's go to Bethsaida. Let's get away from the crowds, and you guys need rest. And also, Matthew, remember, tells us that Jesus also needed rest because his friend had just died. Well, what does John add to the story? Well, John adds to the story that actually Jesus, when they go there, knew all along what was going to happen, which is he was going to need to test his disciples. He was going to put a test to them and see if they had the faith to endure. Now, when you think about tests, you know, the kind of tests like you and I face, um, they're not necessarily the tests of the disciples, right? But if you think about the tests you and I experience, uh, they, they never, ever, ever come when it's convenient. I mean, I think that's like the whole point, right? Is that the disciples are exhausted and Jesus is exhausted and now comes the test. Because I can guarantee you one thing, if you're going through a test or a trial or a hard season, I can guarantee you one thing about it, it is not convenient. It did not happen at the right time. Anyone ever say that? I just can't handle this right now. As if there was another time in your life when you could have handled that crisis. But if you think about it, I mean, what kind of tests and trials are we facing? Well, there's always the test and the trial of the holiday season, right? Which for some of us is full of joy, but for many of us, it's just a reminder of the people who are gone. It's a reminder of all the sad things, the losses. And then, of course, there's the ongoing test in the trial of marriage, right? Anyone? I didn't preach to anybody? There's some spouses in here who's like, I know there's a problem. They may not know there's a problem. You know, there's the test of your career. Is it where you want it to be? Is it the boss? Is it your coworkers? There's the test of your finances. I mean, who's not feeling the financial crunch right now with the holiday seasons coming? But I think some of the harder tests, um, the harder tests that we struggle with are, are not always just, you know, finances and our marriage. A lot of times, I think the, the, the real tests come when they're affecting other people that we love. I mean, there's the test of getting a bad diagnosis, right? That's a test. Uh, but there's the other test of your loved one or your child suffering. And that's a totally different kind of test of your faith, isn't it? It's one thing to be able to say, well, I know my life is going to end one day, and I don't, I don't need everything, but to see children suffer. I mean, that's a very different test of your faith, isn't it? To wonder, God, what are you doing in my kid's life, let alone my life? You know, those kind of tests that make you think, well, I, I guess I'm personally doing okay, but the story my friend just told me or what my kids are dealing with, where was God when that was happening? How do we pass that kind of test? How do we get through that? Well, I think that's why John wants us to focus on this story. is because we've got to figure out how to get through these tests when they don't make sense. And it's really hard to know what God is up to. Well, the first thing you need to realize then, if you're going to get that, if you're going to pass the test, is you've got to start seeing how bad we are at passing the test. <laughs> I know that may not feel like good news, but trust me, it is the good news of the gospel. You and I are not good at passing the test. In fact, this whole section is all about how people don't pass the test. All right, let me just show you that in the passage, right? So look at verse 6-1, right? So Jesus goes away because he's tired and all of his disciples are cranky and right now is not a good time to test me, Jesus. That's what they would be saying, right? I'm cranky and I'm hungry, I'm hangry. 
Now is not a good time, but verse 2 tells us that a large crowd of people was following him. They just couldn't get away. Why? Well, notice how John talks about the crowd of people. Yes, he says they're following Jesus, which is always a good thing to do. It's always a good idea to follow Jesus. But notice that all throughout the gospel, especially with John, there's this undercurrent that sort of flows through the whole book that it's possible to sort of follow Jesus from a distance, to sort of appreciate Jesus, and to sort of follow him skeptically. Maybe you kind of like the stuff he says. Maybe you don't like everything he says. And maybe you're kind of sort of following Jesus, but you never become a follower of Jesus. And John is very skeptical of such people. And so what does John say? He says this large crowd is not following Jesus because they see him as Lord, as as God in the flesh come to save us all. They do so because they saw him do some miraculous signs. Look at verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. And if you don't hear sort of the skepticism, if you flip two pages back, I want to remind you of a verse we looked at several weeks ago. Listen to how uh, John talks about people like that. Look at John chapter 2. In verse 23 and 25, page 1055, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, John reminds us this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, hey, there it is again, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not what? Entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So if you go back to John chapter 6, what we see is there is this sense that it's possible to sort of kind of follow Jesus, but never become a follower. And so right off the bat, we are sort of supposed to be skeptical a little bit about this crowd and what is it that they want. And are they really passing the test, right? Jesus is going to perform a miracle, but do they get it? Do they pass the test? Well, let's flip down to the very end of this story, and let's see how they do by the end of the passage, right? So Jesus feeds them miraculously. He gives them, you know, enough food that thousands and thousands of people have eaten, and look how they respond. This is the crowd. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And what they mean by that is they're referencing uh, the ancient book of Deuteronomy. They're actually talking about Deuteronomy 18, where Moses, the guy who gave the Ten Commandments, Moses said, hey, one day there's going to come a prophet, and he's going to be way more important than I am, and you better listen to his voice. And so the people are like, wait a second, are, is Jesus the one that Moses told us would be the ultimate prophet? And in a sense, yes, Jesus is the fulfillment, but do they really understand what Jesus has come to do? They start to get a little bit of an idea of who Jesus is, but do they really get it? Well, look at verse 15. Full disclosure, they don't get it, in case you were wondering. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, what the people were realizing is that, hey, Jesus can provide food at the drop of a hat. We should come and make him king. You know, in like a good detective story, all of these details in this passage are helping to us to understand what's really going on. You see, when the people see Jesus and he's feeding them miraculously, 
they start to have an idea, hey, wait a second, maybe Jesus is the one who's supposed to come and free us from slavery to the Romans. Moses freed us from slavery to the Egyptians so that we could form our own country. Now Jesus is going to make us into an army so that we can free Israel. In fact, only John is the one who mentions that this happens at Passover. And you may have glossed over that. I think it's in verse 4. John just says, oh, by the way, this happened at Passover. That's important to know because Passover for the Israelites was sort of like the 4th of July for us. It was a lot of national pride, this desire that this is our country. It came at great price to us. And so you have thousands and thousands of people coming to Jerusalem and Israel from all over the world. And it's a great national holiday. And now here is a man who can feed us at the drop of a hat miraculously. And you may also have noticed in the details that there are 5,000 men in this story. And maybe you think that's sexist of the Bible to call them men, because it does. It says they're males. And I know that because in the Greek, it also uses the word for people in this passage. But the Bible is very clear that these are 5,000 men. Matthew and Mark mention that there are women and children not included in that number. But why is John focusing on the 5,000 men? Well, I think the reason is because 5,000 men is the size of an army. It's the size of a Roman legion. And when Jesus has them sit in rows of 50 and 100, as Matthew and Mark tell us, the men look around, and it's the national holiday. And Moses led us out of slavery, and buddy, this guy, he can do greater things than Moses can do. We're going to make ourselves an army. And so I don't care if he wants to be general or not. We will make him be the general, and we will take back our country. And in fact, Jesus goes on to talk about this in John 18, when Jesus is literally in a test, when he's literally on trial. He talks to a guy named Pilate, and Pilate says, so are you really the king of the Jews? And of course, what's the great irony? The irony is, yes, Jesus is the king. He's the king to end all kings, but not like that, not like that. And you know what Jesus tells Pilate in John 18? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it were, my people would be fighting. But my kingdom is not of this world. You see, this is why it's important to believe the story literally happened. Jesus is not just metaphorically telling us to share our lunches with people in need. (laughs) He's not just giving us this beautiful picture. He's literally creating food, and the people are failing the test. They're thinking God's amassing an army. When in reality, what God is doing is he's entered into this world to unite all peoples from every nation, language, and tongue around the king. Paul will go on and say it like this in Ephesians. In his body on the cross, he is breaking down the wall of hostility between all people and in the place of two humanities creating one. So the people, the crowd, they're not really passing the test. And you may think, whoa, what? Knuckleheads. I hate people, right? I mean, part of the reason why you're at church is because you hate people and you know you need help. (laughs) 
It may be easy to be all poo-poo on the crowd, right? It's easy to pick on them. They don't get what Jesus is doing, but you've got to remember that they, they are right in part. They, they start, they say, okay, he's kind of like what Moses said in Deuteronomy, which is true, and yes, he's the king to end all kings, but there's this other area that they're not right about, and they won't really get it until they see him crucified and until they see him back from the dead, then they will understand it. It's like, it's possible for us to see parts of who Jesus is and to believe certain things about him, but actually miss knowing Jesus. Like, you can believe Jesus is a good moral teacher, which he is, but if that's all Jesus really is, you don't really know Jesus. Um, it's, like, it's like knowing what red and yellow look like, but until you mix them, you can't see orange, Right? You can know bits and pieces of who Jesus is, but unless you take him fully, you never really grasp what he's come to do. You'll make the mistake of the crowd. You'll think he's here to fulfill whatever wish you have, which for them was creating an army, which for you may look totally different. But until you accept for Jesus who he actually is and says he is, you'll never really know him. I mean, Jesus will always sort of be this enigma to you. Um, it'll be sort of a heightened projection on what you want. He'll be sort of like a divine uh, casino thing that always works, meant to just give you what you want. So the crowd, they're not, past, they're not really getting who Jesus is, right? Well, the disciples, do they do any better? Do they pass the test? Well, what do the disciples say? I love this. You know, it's happening on Passover, and it's full of all these cute little details, like John wants you to know that there's grass so it would have been easy to sit down. I don't know why that's important, but it's also a reminder that this is happening during springtime when Passover happened. So it's this beautiful spring day. I know it's hard to imagine right now as it's kind of cloudy, but this is happening in the spring. It's around Passover. And, you know, Jesus turns uh, to, in verse 6 and 7, right? He turns to his buddy Philip. And uh, don't you love Philip? You know, I love Philip. Because Jesus turns to Philip and he says, hey, where are we supposed to get bread? And he asked that because Philip is from around here. He's from Bethsaida. He's from this region. You know, he's like, Jesus turns to him and says, hey, we're in your neck of the woods. Where's the closest grocery store? And uh, don't you love how Philip responds? You know, like when, when we're put to the test by the Lord, you know, Philip goes like total analytical, like critical. He goes critical analytical. He's like, I don't know. Hold on. Let me get my calculator out. Let me think about this. He says, well... If somebody worked for 200 days, a denarii was just like one day's worth, work of a wage, right? 200 days worth, about eight months of work by one person wouldn't even be enough to give somebody even a small bite. You know, I mean, when, when you and I are faced with tests of our faith, I mean, how many of us go back to just sort of like analyses, you know? I'm going to think it through. You know, anybody think that their spiritual gift is thinking or critical analyses? Yeah, you've got faith, honey. I've got critical analyses. And Google, and we're going to solve this problem. You know, that's the first way to sort of fail the test, right, is when your marriage is not where you want it to be, or your health, or your kids. It's very easy to go to human critical analyses for the solution, all right, and exactly where Philip goes. Um, and this is so hard, I think, for us to, to grab. I know it's hard for me. You know, I'll never forget, uh, you know, the day that my mentor changed my life. So I have this great pastor. I, I try to be just like him. I part my hair on the same side of my head as he does. I try to dress like him. I try to talk like him. And his name is Richard, and he's so great. And when I was working for him years ago in North Carolina, I had this huge problem. I mean, it's like way more important than your problems. Mine was big, right? <laughs> and there was like no solution. So I went into Richard's office, and I was like, Richard, 
how do we solve this problem? And he's like, well, tell me about it. So I told him all about my problem. And he goes, mm, mm, wow, uh, mm. That's how he talks. And he goes, wow, let's pray. And I said, let's pray? What are you talking about? Pray, what's that going to do? Let's solve the problem. You're all terrified. I don't know why you're so terrified right now. But you know what Richard did? He prayed with me. And uh, I didn't even think I closed my eyes when he prayed. I just stared at him. I was like, what, what is happening right now? Like, we need to Google this. We got to work on this. We got to go find a book to fix this. And then he just prayed. And then he like patted me on the knee and ushered me out of his room. And it changed my life. Because I don't know if you're anything like Philip, but I think I am. It's so easy to look at my problems and think there's just some human solution. I can just think my way through this. And sure, that can solve a lot of problems in your life. But when it comes to the real tests, like the real tests that you're going through, like the actual thing that is rocking your faith, you're not going to think your way through it. God's got something else in mind. And I think Andrew is really the beautiful example. Andrew's not perfect. Andrew's a human like us. But at least Andrew, look at verse 8 and 9. Andrew gets, you know, as close as anybody. Because what Andrew does is Andrew comes up and, you know, he comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, you know, there's certainly not enough food, but at least here's a boy, you know, this young lad, you know, He's got, you know, five barley loaves and two fish. And barley is important because it's poor people food. Um, respectable people wouldn't, eaten, wouldn't have eaten barley. It's what the lowest of the low would have eaten. You know, it'd be kind of like saying, hey, I'm really hungry. And then someone says, well, I've got five cold bowls of ramen noodles. <laughs> and I've got some white bread that's sure to be terrible for you. Would you like that? What's that going to do? And what Andrew does is he comes up and he says, hey, I, pff, Jesus, I don't know what you want us to do, but at least here's something. But what are we going to do in the face of that? And what I love about that is I think you need to see that as just the, it's like the bare smallest amount of faith. Um, it's, not, it's not really admirable. I mean, if you're Andrew's mom, you're not like, that's my boy. That's him. I am very, good job, son. Way not to believe in Jesus. Very good. What you have to see this as Andrew is giving the littlest amount of faith. And he's saying, I'll give you that. Is there anything you can do with it? And, you know, a lot of times when you struggle with like the really hard tests, you know, like when, you're, when your child gets the wrong kind of diagnosis, when there's a real death, when you're actually the victim of real injustice, when your marriage dissolves, when there's a real test. You may think, I just, I just don't believe this stuff enough to think that Jesus actually can do something. I just, I don't know. I don't think I have that kind of faith. People like that are either admirable or like kooky, and I'm neither of those things. But the thing about Andrew is he gives just the smallest amount of faith. He says, God, do what you can with it. And friends, what you have to realize is simply, simply this. Does the spark need to be big to start a wildfire? Does it? Does a spark have to be big to start a wildfire? Does your faith have to be big for God to do a mighty work? No. 
There was a couple. His name was Jim. He was from Portland. We love people from Portland, right? (laughs) Felt I needed to qualify that a little bit. Jim was from Portland. Uh, Jim died when he was 28 while he was married. Uh, Jim was a missionary uh, to Ecuador. And you may know his story, Jim Elliott. There was a movie made about his life, Into the Spear. And Jim from Portland went down to Ecuador and tried to share the gospel of grace and forgiveness to the people of Ecuador. And he was famously killed by those people. Uh, Not long after, his wife Elizabeth, incredibly famously, moved to that tribe in Ecuador. And there she led people to Christ and made those people her brothers and sisters and taught them about the forgiveness and the redemption and the new hope in Jesus, who's making all things new and tearing down the wall of hostility between all people and in the place of two tribes making one. You think she has anything to teach us about being tested by God? I mean, what glory could God possibly get killing my 28-year-old husband who's just trying to tell people about Jesus? Listen to what Elizabeth had to say about it later on. Elizabeth says this, If the only thing you have to offer God is a broken heart, offer your broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been a very great strength for me. Realizing that I have nothing and nothing I am will be refused by Christ. I simply give it to him as a little boy gives him five loaves and two fish. And with the same feeling as the disciples who said, what is the good of this before so many? You see, friends, you don't have to have a lot of faith. You just got to give them whatever faith you have. Jesus says, you just got to have faith like a mustard seed, and that seed can grow into a tree. So whatever test or trial you're going through, and it's the holidays, which means your family's coming, which means you're going to face a test. No amens on that. Amazing. (laughs) But whether it's small tests, big tests, how do we respond You know, I can't give you an answer for why the things have happened in your life that they have and be skeptical of anybody who says, here's why. But I think as Christians, we have sort of two responses, not answers, but responses to the tests and the trials. I think the first response that we give is what if the test, what if the trial you're going through What if God's never going to give you the reason why? But what if the reason you're going through it is so that you can grow closer to God, your Father? I mean, whether you're a father or not in the room, I mean, what do you do when your child has broken her leg and is weeping and crying? I mean, every good father knows what you do, and every mother knows that you hold your baby with your left hand so that its head is near your heart. I mean, what do you do when your child is suffering? You don't say, well, honey, you broke your leg because you jumped out of a two-story window, you dummy. I mean, maybe you do, but that's just being a bad parent. What you do, fathers, is what? You pick up your child and you hold your child close to your heart so that your steady heartbeat 
starts to become hers. And you grow closer to your child. That's not an explanation why, but what if your suffering, testing, trial was meant to make your spirit resonate with the spirit of your father? Second thing, second response, not an answer to why you're going through this or why your kids are going through this or why your family's going through this. The second response is what if this is actually preparation for an even harder test. I mean, you do know you're going to die, right? It's going to happen to all of us. And that's going to be the real test, the real trial. Do I really believe Jesus makes all things new, including me? So what if the test you're going through now is meant to be practice to strengthen your weak limbs and strengthen your weak knees, as Hebrews says? So what if instead of looking at your test thinking, God, give me the spiritual gift of critical analyses so I don't have to pray anymore? What if you said, Lord, bring me closer to you and strengthen me so that I can pass the ultimate test? Because let's be honest, Philip, Andrew, the crowd, none of them are passing the test. None of them are seeing what Jesus is really up to. And friends, what you've got to see, what the heartbeat of Christianity is, the gospel of grace is you and I do not pass the test. (laughs) That's the whole point. You know, we like to say around here, the gospel's two messages. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. And cheer up, you are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than you dare imagine. I mean, the whole point is that Jesus has to provide what we cannot. Philip cannot provide it. Andrew cannot provide it. Their critical analyses isn't going to fix it. Only Jesus can provide what we need. And Jesus is going to pass the test for them. You see, Jesus' life, you know, at the end of this story, right, Jesus is on a mountain and people are coming to try to take him by force to make him king. And Jesus escapes somehow. It's beautiful. I don't know how he escapes, but he does. He escapes these 5,000 men thinking like men to turn into an army. And Jesus escapes their plans and he goes off and he prays by himself. You see, but Jesus is going to go up on another mountain later on in this story. And on that mountain, Jesus is going to pray to his Father, Father, your will be done, not mine. And Jesus will face the great test of his life. And more men will come from an army, and they will take him by force. And by force, they will mock him. They'll call him the king of the Jews and put it on a sign over his cross and they'll put a crown of thorns around his head and they'll put a purple robe around him and beat him. They'll say, oh, you're the king, aren't you? But they don't see him for who he really is because this king is going to die taking the punishment you and I deserve for our sin. All the times that we have failed to pass the test, don't you see, you don't make up for it by fixing yourself. Jesus makes up for it through his life and death on your behalf. And Jesus gives you victory over death itself because he comes back from the dead on the third day. So your hope, Christian, if you're a Christian in this room, your hope is not that you're going to think through your problems, you're not going to fix all of your problems, because all the big ones are the ones you can't fix. That's what makes them your big problems, right? What it means to be a Christian 
is you see that Jesus succeeds where we always fail. And through faith in Jesus, when I say, I cannot fix myself, Jesus, I need you. Jesus says, by faith, the Holy Spirit dwells within you so that his spirit matches your spirit. And y'all are linked together forever. So the way you pass the test is you don't lean on your own strength. You lean on the spirit at work within you. You lean on Jesus who dwells within you, who has passed the test. Are you good at tests? I don't think so. (laughs) Maybe you are. Maybe you are a great student, and maybe you are a great student. Uh, But when it comes to the real tests, uh, friends, how are you going to pass those? Uh, Friends, this is an invitation to let Jesus pass the test for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, born under the law, to redeem those under the curse of the law. Lord, we could not do everything right, but you did on our behalf. Father, for those of us who are struggling with tests, Lord, would you strengthen us by your spirit? Would we lean not on our own understanding, but the Holy Spirit of Christ within us? Father, whether it's our marriage or our children or our finances, Uh, Lord, teach us uh, to be in step with your spirit so that your heartbeat becomes ours. Amen.